With Shermantine on death row and Herzog serving 14 years following his appeal, the case of the speed freak killers laid relatively dormant for a number of years. Of course, the families continued to search for answers and a number of others were helping them in continuing their investigations. But from a law enforcement perspective, the case was closed, wasn't it? They had their convictions, so what else needed to be done? At this point in the season, we would like to tell you more about law enforcement in San Joaquin County, from the first of the known Speed Freak Killers murders to date. John Zanino was sheriff from 1983 to 1991. Baxter Dunn was sheriff from 1991 to 2005. Bob Heidelbach then had a short term as sheriff from 2005 to 2007. Steve Moore was sheriff from 2009 to 2019. And the current sheriff is Pat Withrow. There have been many public articles released over the years about Sheriff Moore, and having spoken to the victim's families and other law enforcement from this time, there appeared to be some things going on that may not have been completely above board, though none of this has yet been proved. It should be noted that the interviews included in our episodes are the opinions and experiences of those speaking and are not the opinions of the hosts of this podcast. We were lucky enough to be able to speak to the current sheriff, Pat Withrow. My name is Pat Withrow and I'm sheriff of San Joaquin County here in California. And I've worked at our department for over 30 years and decided that I was not happy with the leadership and the direction our department had, had turned towards. So I did the last thing I ever thought I'd do, and, and that's sit down with my family and tell them I was thinking about running for sheriff. And they were surprised yet supportive. And after two times, um, the second time it took me eight years, but uh, we won in uh, 2018 and took office in 2019. And before that, were you a deputy sheriff? I was. I was a deputy sheriff, started as a deputy sheriff working the jail. And then after three years, my seniority number came up and I went to the street and did that for 17 years, including uh, five years on SWAT and 12 years as a canine officer and all different positions and street crimes units and stuff. And, and then my body started to tell me it was harder for me to keep up with that dog and get over fences. So I uh, took the sergeant's test and promoted to sergeant and then worked a bunch of different divisions in our department as a, as a sergeant. And while as a sergeant is when I decided to make a run for sheriff. Now, you were talking about leadership. I'm assuming that you were talking about Sheriff Moore. I'll ask you about him in a moment. Before he was sheriff, there was a man named Baxter Dunn that was the sheriff prior. Now, how how long were you under Dunn's leadership? 
Well, I joined the department in 1987, and I was sh- sworn in then by John Zanino, and then Sheriff Dunn ran against Sheriff Zanino and, and, and took the office, and that was in the early 90s, I believe it was, and so I worked under Sheriff Dunn, I think, for about 12 years. I think he had three terms, and uh, then he got in trouble and was removed from office, and then we had an interim sheriff named Sheriff Heidelbach, and he was uh, an interim sheriff because Sheriff Dunn left before his third term was over, so the board appointed an interim sheriff. And then Sheriff Moore ran and won the position, and he was in office for, for three terms himself. Now, what actually got Dunn kicked out of office? Well, you know, it was a, it was a big political upheaval at that time and he was involved in in some stuff some business things away from the office it really didn't have much to do with the office other than he was the seated sheriff at the time so it was some business dealings and the legality of those away from the office because he got kicked out of office at the time when sheriff moore took over do you think that the way that Dunn ran the office and how he got kicked out. Do you think that that eventually caused a break in the sheriff's department? So when Moore came in, the office was kind of already in an upheaval? You know, it was. The office was very divided and none of the uh, deputy sheriff's association or the correctional officers association supported Steve Moore when he ran for sheriff, even though he was the uh, assistant sheriff at that time. Uh, none of them endorsed him or supported him. So uh, the office was very divided, and uh, there was a lot of lot of turmoil going on. Now, so Sheriff Moore was the second person in charge. Is that what you said under Dunn? That's correct. He was the assistant sheriff. So did you know Moore at the time then? I did. He had been a, a lieutenant in charge of the canine unit when I was in the canine unit. He was a sergeant at the jail back when I worked there. And uh, he was captain of patrol when I was out on patrol. So, yeah, I knew him fairly well. And you said that Sheriff Moore, when he was running for sheriff, he didn't have the support. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, when when you're running for office, a lot of times you ask different associations or people to endorse your campaign and come out in public and say, hey, this is the guy we think is for the job. And none of the associations here at the department would do that. They did not want him to be the next sheriff. Do you know why? Did they just not trust him? Yeah, it's just, you know, you know each other very well in law enforcement. You have this uh, family that you develop and his personality type and his uh, leadership style, if you could call it that, if he had one, was uh, just nothing but uh, negative and, and, and all about the power of a position as opposed to trying to do the job properly. And so uh, none of us thought that he was the right man for the job. And I And I think in hindsight, it it proved itself out. So let's go into that. What exactly was going on within the sheriff's department under Moore that made you feel like you needed to step up and be the leader? Well, it it just appeared that I always phrase it as we put the walls up around the, the sheriff's office where instead of being engaged with our community and open to our community and involved, we became very secretive and it was very uh, micromanaged where none of the captains or lieutenants or sergeants were allowed to run their their divisions or their units everything had to be cleared from the top 
And uh, when that starts to happen in law enforcement, especially, everything just slows to a halt. And so when you don't have trust in the, in the men and women that work for you and you try and control everything yourself, then the department just starts to fail. And, and clearly our department was faltering. So Moore had deleted missing person files in the database while he was sheriff. In your opinion, as the sheriff now, do you think that a sheriff can or should do that? No, I, I, I realized that uh, files were, were taken out of the database. And from what I understand, unless uh, there's been a full body recovery, it's illegal to do so. And so, but we are looking into why that occurred and how it occurred. And before we come out with a definite position on how that was done and why it was done. And, and then once we find that out, if we find that anyone has done anything uh, wrong or criminally wrong, then we will uh, address that through the proper authorities. When you took office or when you were about to take office, did you already hear about maybe even rumors at that time about missing person files disappearing from the databases? Were you aware of that? Yeah, absolutely. I had reached out to the families during my first run, you know, so eight years earlier when I decided to run back in 2011, 2012, I, I began hearing about what was going on in this investigation and, and was contacted by um, some folks that were involved in the investigation, Rob Dick and, and some of the other folks that had been working with the families. And so uh, Jeff Reinick, a uh, retired FBI agent. And so people were reaching out to me and explaining what was going on. Of course, I was shocked. And, and you know, to be quite honest, when I first heard what was, was happening, it was, it was hard for me to believe. Uh, being having been in this department and know the the integrity and the and the quality of work that that used to come from this department and and then the more and more I learned I understood um, what was happening and how Sheriff Moore at that time had taken control of this investigation and kicked everybody else out of it except for a select few and then just started to for some reason appear to try and sabotage any opportunity for the these families to get any type of closure to their missing loved ones or murdered loved ones so yeah i was aware, uh, aware of it for a long time met with the many of the family members at one time in one big group setting and so yeah i was i i, I was regularly updated on, on on things that were happening now when you actually took office knowing that there were missing person files deleted from the database the other things that you were hearing about what Sheriff Moore had done, how did you feel? Were you nervous going in to a situation that you would now be the man in charge? Were you worried right. about the situation at all? Well, uh, to say I wasn't worried wouldn't would, would, would be uh, untrue. I looked at it more that I was excited that I had this opportunity to right this wrong. And I wasn't sure. All we'd known is... is is what we've been told and, and things that all these investigators like uh, Tracy and, and Jeff Reinick and Rob Dick and the family members had all done on their own. But until we could actually get in and get our hands on the files and into the computers and step into this evidence room to find what, if anything, was left, I just didn't know for sure what we were going to find. So I, I looked at it more as a just an amazing opportunity to really help these families and get them an answer one way or another. Yes, all these bad things did happen, or 
no, uh, here's what the truth is and here's what's going on. So it just was, it was a real blessing for me. And I, I still look at it as an opportunity. Uh, this morning I was over with our cold case detectives and, and it, every time I just start smiling when I'm talking with them because uh, they're working so hard and, and the job that they have in front of them is just enormous. And yet here we are finally getting the opportunity to, to try and right some wrongs. We asked Sheriff Withrow if there is currently a cold case unit in San Joaquin County. Well, under the previous sheriff, Steve Moore, the, they said that they had a cold case unit, but it was one sergeant who was a sergeant in charge of several different units. And obviously he would never have time or be able to work for the, the cold cases that we had being just one person and, and being in charge of so many other things. So it was just a cold case in name only so that the previous administration could say, oh, we had a cold case unit. Or it was like, you know, they said we had a gang unit and uh, it was a gang unit of, of one person. You know, well, it's tough to go out and do gang investigations when you have a carload of gangbangers and you're by yourself. So everything was just uh, for show. And so now I'm, I'm very proud to say that the supervisor supported me in my first budget and gave me the funding for an actual cold case unit. And I have some amazing people in there that I, I trust that if it was my family that was missing or my child that had been injured or killed, that these were the people that I would want working on my family's case. And uh, I feel that way about all my detectives. They're amazingly hardworking, caring people when you allow them to do their job. But these are folks that I'd worked with in the past, some of them. And so, yes, we have a sergeant and we have two positions that are funded, one that is filled right now by another detective. And then we've brought in another deputy off the street to help with gathering all the information. And we have some civilian staff assigned to it, too, uh, because right now we're at the point where we are just trying to figure out what we have and where we're at. There's so much evidence and just boxes and boxes and boxes of paper reports that need to be inputted into a computer system so that we can scan them and go through them quickly and keep track of them. And then all the evidence in the evidence room that's left, we're having to go back through again and, and, and enter it into the system and figure out what we have. And just an example, I went over this morning and they were in there and Every little bone fragment that we found that are in either envelopes or bags or we are having to take out, photograph, assign a number to, and we're also recording this while we're doing it. And then it needs to be inputted into the system and then a supplement uh, for each little fragment as to where we found it and what kind of evidence bag it was in and if it had a case number related to it or if it did not. And so, so, so far, there's been uh, well over 700 small pieces of bone fragment that they've had to do that with individually, each one. So you can imagine how long that takes. And approximately over 11,000 pieces of evidence, uh, including those bone fragments, um, that they've had to just get into the system. So the enormity of this, of this rebuilding of this case is is going to be incredible. So I'm amazed at the job they're doing, and 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 the, they're they're such hard workers that you know the captain over there, Captain Barnes, 
who's, who's fantastic and I got to promote to captain, is having to force them to leave. It's like, hey, guys, take a break. You know, step away from it. Catch your breath because they are just pit bulls and want to just keep going and going. And, and, and that's why I chose them. So our problem is getting them to take some time off and catch their breath and get their, get their mind right. So I'm very excited about what's going on over there. How many cold cases are in your county? Well, in my department, I can speak to that. We have almost 200 homicide cold cases. I believe there's another 150 approximately missing person cold cases. And then another approximately 50 sexual assault cold cases. So altogether, there we're looking at about, what was that, 300, 350 cases. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Tracy, who has been working on this case with us, wants everyone to know that just because this podcasting is highlighting certain cases, every single one of those 350 cases is just as important to Sheriff Withrow, the cold case team, and everyone else involved. You know, we spoke about about this a little bit before you and I, Pat, but, you know, the other important thing about, you know, even in doing this podcast, you know, it kind of like elevates the Speed Freak Killer cases as like to a level where, you know, obviously, you know, because of the nefarious actions of the previous administration, we feel like, you know, they need justice and, you know, maybe we should go first because we've waited all these years, you know, that we want these resolved. And it, the important thing about the sheriff and, and the cold case team and that what I respect is that, you know, 
there's 350 cases and they are just as important as a serial killer case. And those families too, whether highlighted or not highlighted or mentioned or brought out into the news, deserve the same amount of time and effort and resolution as these cases that are so public. You know, uh, sometimes I think, you know, people need to be reminded that just because, you know, a family didn't cause a stink and go public and all this stuff doesn't mean that they don't deserve the same amount of time and respect from the cold case team and the sheriff as everybody else. And so, you know, I don't want this podcast to just be where we're highlighting the serial killer cases, you know, it's also, you know, I want it out there that this sheriff's administration is going to put the same amount of time and attention and resources towards all their cases, not just these ones that are highlighted and in the news because of, you know, almost the grotesque nature of it. People are like attracted to it, you know, and so they've got a huge job ahead of them for all the families involved, not just these ones we're highlighting. Sheriff Withrow, when was the first time you heard of the names Herzog and Sherman time? Wow, you know, it was probably back, you know, like I said, I came on in 87. So once I hit the street, I knew the investigations were going on. It was fairly well publicized back then when they were taken into custody and, and those, those trials were going on. But again, I was just on the periphery like everybody else. I, you know, I had my, I was, a, I was a rookie on the street and had my head down and doing my job and just trying to handle my cases. And, and again, I wasn't involved in, in any of the investigation side of it. Our detectives were handling that, and so, but I'd heard about it, you know, it was it was a very famous case through our department for years because it impacted so many families throughout our county. Sheriff Withrow, I wanted to ask you if you could explain how a sheriff operates and a coroner and how they're separate. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's kind of interesting right now because we are going through as a transition, as you may know, where the coroner's division was taken away from the previous sheriff after us having run the coroner or been the coroner in this county since 1849. And, and I think that's a good thing. I push for it after what, what happened, which was highlighted here in the, in the, in the Herzog-Shermantine case. And so now we are in the, in the, in the midst of transitioning from being the coroner uh, to a medical examiner, and uh, we have just hired the medical examiner, uh, Dr. Hunter, out of San Francisco, and they're going to be building a new medical examiner's office, and so they will be completely separate from us eventually once they're able to hire their staff. And so right now we're 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 kind of in this transition period where we're still helping doing the coroner's cases out on the street, and yet we have Dr. Hunter in charge of the forensic pathology side of it and is the medical examiner and determines, determines the, the, the manner and cause of the, the death of, of, of the subject. So how it kind of works is that law enforcement goes out and investigates the, when someone is killed to find out whether it was a homicide or an accident or natural causes, things like that, to make sure if there's any criminality involved. And then the body is turned over to the forensic pathologist and he determines the actual, the, the cause, what caused a person to stop living. So through medical examination. So we, one determines the criminality side of it, if there was or was not any criminality involved. And the other determines the actual reason why somebody stopped, physically stopped living. Is that a relief kind of, Sheriff, that, you know, 
that gets to be a little bit of a lesser of a burden upon you for all those or well i i don't know if i i wouldn't call it a relief but it it, it allows my officers to go out and do what they're 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 yeah. really trained for and that's fighting crime and protecting our citizens and being involved in our community and instead of and then instead of you know being involved in like the medical side of of when somebody passes away and we always had forensic pathologists obviously who handles autopsies and things like that they were under contract with us but it's good to have that separation and i think it makes the the public uh feel much more confident in, in the results that come out of a medical yes. examiner's office uh, because especially if an officer is involved in the cause of someone's death, if we're involved in a shooting or a car crash or something like that, then we should be separated from that and allow an independent uh, medical examiner to make those determinations so the public knows and can have confidence that they're hearing the truth. And so I have another question for you, Sheriff. I've noticed and I think I, this all, I think this comes from, a, this is a very good idea, actually, is it seems to me like you have elevated the people that you trust to take control of their different divisions and areas where, you know, clearly they've worked at for years. And in doing that, it kind of takes you out of the position of, because like with Sheriff Moore, I mean, everything was his decision, period, lock, stock and barrel. So we could blame him. You know what I'm saying? And I think right. that, that you taking a step back and letting your people look at this, like you let the cold case team do their thing. You let the medical examiner's office do their thing. You know what I'm saying? And so nobody yeah. can ever be able to come back and say that you got in there and tried to push your agenda one way or another. Yeah, you know, that would, I always thought it was, it was my job that the, the moment I was willing to take this oath and take this office is to my personal feelings are not allowed in this office anymore. It is my job to do what is best for the men and women uh, that work for me here at this office. And, you know, we have almost 900 of them. And so my personal feelings can't come into play. And I am clearly not the smartest guy in the room sometimes. And uh, yes, <laughs> it is my job to, to step out of the way and let those who have the expertise and other things, like detectives, you know, I work I investigated a lot of cases out in the street when I was working street crimes and as a, as a deputy and all kinds of things like that. But that's very different from working detectives where you're nine to five and, and, and digging into the cases. And so my job is to surround myself with the best and the brightest and, and take their advice and, and just find from them what they need to be successful. And if I can make sure that all my people have what they need to be successful, then I can make San Joaquin County the safest county in the nation. And, and that's my goal. Amen. In a system where you have a sheriff coroner, basically that's when the sheriff is the coroner. Uh, in a situation where I know, like, for example, here in my county, if our sheriff were to commit a murder, the coroner is the only person that can arrest that sheriff. So do you know in the situation where the sheriff is the coroner, who would arrest the sheriff? Yeah, we, we are held to the same standards as everyone else. So the district attorney can come in and charge uh, a seated sheriff with a crime. If they find that they've committed a crime, they have their own investigators. The attorney general of our state can come in and charge crimes against elected officials. And then, of course, the feds can always come in, the FBI and 
and all the federal government can come in and charge crimes against elected officials. So, so there are a lot of checks and balances, and, and I guarantee you there's a lot of people keeping their eyes on us, that making sure that, that we're doing the right things and, and calling us out if we don't. We asked Sheriff Withrow to explain how the chain of custody works. For example, in the case of the bones retrieved from a scene, which are later returned to a family. This will be relevant in a later episode. Sheriff, I have two questions for you. Number one, I was wondering if you could explain to me the process of the chain of custody of evidence. So you find a bone out at a recovery site that's put in, you know, put into a bag, logged into evidence, and it has it has what, like a little yellow envelope that it goes into? And then, so can you explain to me the process of what is done with those envelopes during the investigation, what is supposed to happen with those after the investigation? I mean, explain to me chain of custody and something like this. Yeah, you know, the, the, the scenes that we have should have been handled because they were uh, down in a well or, or buried should have been handled like an archaeological dig where you, you, you map your, your, your grid out on the ground. And so you're able to say that this bone fragment or this jacket or this button was located, you know, at this GPS coordinates, you know, right here. So we can exactly say where we found it, where it was located. Then it's photographed in place. Then it's recovered and documented on an envelope if it's the size that will fit into a manila evidence envelope or into a Ziploc bag if it needs to go into that and then into a manila envelope or a, a big paper bag if depending on the size of it or what, however you're going to package it. Then the, the case that you're working on is documented on the outside and then there's the description of the piece of evidence that you found. And the quantity, if there's more more than one thing that's in an envelope or an evidence bag or, or whatever you had to put it in. And then it's retained by the detective that's, that's working that case. And, uh, or it's turned over to our technical services if, if there's a, a lot that they need to transport in. Then it should be transported in and documented in an, on an evidence slip. And if it's human bones and things like that, it should be kept over in our morgue area where we keep those type of biological type evidence. And uh, if it's a, a button or a jacket or a gun or whatever it is, then that would be booked into evidence and entered into the system there. And it's placed in the evidence room and documented exactly where it's placed and, and who put it there. And all the way along that chain of command or chain of evidence, who is ever transporting or has custody of that is documented everywhere along so that we can go back into court someday if need be and say, okay, it got to this location or this location by, you know, deputy so-and-so uh, moving it around. So right now, the cold case unit, when they're taking evidence out of the evidence room, they have to document that too. The evidence clerk says, okay, I turn this over to uh, Detective Sergeant Jimenez, and then she supplements the case. I took this piece of evidence out of evidence and took it over to our cold case conference room and we're documenting it this way so every little step of the way it has to be documented okay and so when everything's 
said and done and you're releasing remains to a family member then or to their family members what is done how how is that done i mean is it do they get the envelopes that all the evidence was accumulated into those envelopes go to the funeral home i mean or what happens to those chain of custody envelopes are those ever released to the families they shouldn't be they should be taken out of that if it's going to and you don't release it to the family you release it to whichever memorial uh, okay. or a funeral service place is going to handle it for you mortuary and they'd be transported into a, a separate bag that would transport those biological type of pieces of evidence if they're no longer needed by the mortuary and then interned in a proper way and it's all prescribed by law and how you have to handle body parts and things like that so would it be against the law per se for those uh chain of evidence custody or the chain of evidence envelopes to be would that be against the law well i i said that again that would be up to uh, uh the district attorney to to determine if, if if laws had been broken or the attorney general it would clearly be an unusual thing for for that to occur to for those to be handled that way the last question we'll end with, is there anything that we can do as the public to help support you or your team with this case or the other cold cases that you're currently trying to work through? Yeah, no, that's a great question because, you know, we are constantly gathering uh, evidence and, and, and learning new facts about this on a daily basis. So anyone who has information, please reach out to us and, and let us know. And, you know, this is uh, going to be a long, drawn-out, multiple investigations on the 350 cases that we have to, to work on. So I would ask for their patience and let them know that it's not because we're not trying. We're working as hard as we can. I asked for four cold case detectives. I got two in my budget the first time around, and I'm asking for two more this time around. So hopefully we'll get that, and we'll keep growing it uh, as we need. But and another office person, Sheriff. <laughs> okay, all right. I would just ask for them to be patient and understand that if we start having to do more deeper investigation into this, it's going to become very costly. So we may be reaching out to different businesses and, and uh, colleges and people with expertise to assist us in this investigation. And we're hoping that uh, we can we can do this and, and uh, get all the families the closure that they need. So we look forward to working closely with the, uh, our community and keeping them informed on what's going on and keeping them informed of the needs that we have and, and look forward to their support as they have been given us all along now. And I would like to say, to add on to that, is that you don't have to be afraid to contact the sheriff's office anymore about any information that you have. There's uh, nothing to be afraid of. The sheriff wants your tips. He wants to hear what you guys have. You don't have to be afraid of any retribution or, you know, the IRS auditing your family or pulling over your family members or any of those things that everybody's been afraid of in the past about coming forward to the sheriff's office that, you know, the sheriff's office will take your information seriously and they will protect your anonymity and if you have any information at all, just please, you don't have to be afraid anymore to, uh, to come forward. We also spoke to Frank Aldo, who is a law enforcement veteran. 
He tells us how he got involved in the Speed Freak killer case. In his introduction, he talks about Michaela Garrett. Michaela was just nine years old when she was abducted in broad daylight in Hayward, California, by an unknown male. Though it has not been proven, many believe that her abductor could have been Lauren Herzog, as he matched the description that was released by the police. Hi, my name is Frank Aldo. I am a 20-year law enforcement veteran with uh, city, county, state, federal, and private uh, experience. Um, and I think your question was, uh, how did I get involved in this case? And that's uh, sort of a long story, but I was a bounty hunter many, many years ago, and uh, that was the first time that I ran into uh, some family members of uh, Michaela Garrett. And that's, I guess, uh, geez, I don't know what year that would have been, maybe 1989, 1990, something like that. That's when uh, uh, maybe my interest in this case uh, started. Later, um, I became a whistleblower that was uh, part of the group that helped um, cooperate with the FBI uh, when uh, there was an uh, investigation into Sheriff Baxter Dunn, a corruption um, case. He was the, a, a former uh, San Joaquin County Sheriff. I also was a correctional officer at one time for the county, and that's when I first ran into uh, Wesley and Lauren. They were inmates at the time that I was a correctional officer uh, at the county, so... Uh, it's sort of a long, uh, a long winding uh, story. I was uh, sort of known in the community as being a whistleblower against Baxter Dunn. And I think when concerns about corruption came up in regards to Sheriff Steve Moore, some people saw me as a uh, logical uh, person uh, to reach out to because I was a, a, a vocal critic of Sheriff Baxter Dunn. And then when there were issues with Sheriff Steve Moore, uh, some people just felt like I was uh, someone who would at least listen. Can you start by telling me, you said that, was it Michaela's family who you had interactions with? Very, very brief. In fact, it was, uh, so Michaela had, I think it was an aunt that uh, had a, uh, a glass company, uh, like an auto glass company in Lodi. Uh, I was a bounty hunter many years ago. Like, again, I think... Well, I think I was a bounty hunter from 1989 to 96. We graduated in three. Yeah, somewhere early in my bounty hunting career, I had arrested somebody in Lodi, which was, at, even though I'm from Lodi, it was kind of a rare thing. Usually my cases were outside of the area. But I happened to arrest somebody in Lodi, and during that arrest, someone threw a, uh, someone uh, that was feeling sympathetic towards the uh, gentleman I was arresting threw a brick through my uh, car window. So I had to go to get my window fixed. And at the time, I, this was back when there was pagers instead of, uh, I had a pager and would go to a telephone booth to uh, return my call. And I had a, a little business card that said, Fugitive Apprehension Consultants. And, you know, here's, you know, my pager number, you know, call me, but I'll call you back within 24 hours, try again, something like that. So I left that uh, business card to the glass company and said, Hey, you know, give me a page when my, um, glass, uh, car window glass is done. And I'll never forget. I mean, I'm thinking just about my window. All of a sudden this lady comes out from the back 
and it was the wife of the owner of, I think it was the Lodi Glass shop. I can't remember the name. But um, uh, she came out in tears and said, can you help us? And I had no idea what she was talking about. And then she proceeds to tell me the story of Michaela Garrett, who I believe was her niece. And I was a young bounty hunter. My, my specialty was finding people that I knew at least their name. And I usually had some basic information about who I was going after. Really, you know, relatively simple work compared to what she was asking, which is we don't have a suspect. Um, uh, and it just was over my pay grade, to be quite honest, at that time in my life. And, and I had a lot of cases and I was young and maybe I wasn't quite as empathetic as I should have been. And basically, you know, I said, geez, I, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but the gist of it was I can't help you. I was from Hayward originally. Michaela was from Hayward. Here I'm telling a woman that's crying, I, I can't help you. And I, I went on along with my busy life. Well, years later, as I was, you know, going over my own work history, I was kind of patting myself on the back saying, wow, I have a hundred percent success rate. I've captured every fugitive I've ever chased, which actually is true. Kind of an unusual thing in bounty hunting. And as I was sort of being full of myself, I realized, well, you know what? That's actually not quite true, is it? Because there was one case that I, I didn't take, which was Michaela's. It's sort of weird the way the full circle comes where, so years later, I'm, you know, kind of old. I'm in my late thirties, which, you know, I, I was, in a lot, I was, I went to the Modesto police Academy when I was 18 years old. So, and Bounty hunting has a way of aging you. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I was an old man in many, many ways. I'm 54 now, so I'm really old. But um, I was, uh, I felt like in the twilight of my career, even though I was in my late 30s, and as a correctional officer, trying to take it easy with a nice, cushy job, I happened to run across Lauren Herzog, who's one of the inmates at the county jail. And, you know, anybody who's ever seen the uh, composite of, you know, the, the little girl that was with Michaela at the time, you know, with the help of Hayward PD, you know, did this drawing that looks exactly like Lauren Herzog. You know, then at some point, you know, Wesley Shermantine was, was uh, claiming that, you know, Herzog killed Michaela and blah, blah, blah. So obviously there was this connection where, where I felt really weird, where it's like, wow, you know, at one point, you know, many years ago, I'm being attacked, you know, the, the family reaches out to me and I don't do anything. Years later, it's coming out that, you know, that most likely Herzog killed Michaela. And then I'm finding out at some point that we have a Sheriff Steve Moore who's destroying evidence and obstructing justice and doing all kinds of crazy things, removing computer missing person files out of the system and just a variety of things. And I realized that uh, sometimes God puts things in front of you that you just can't ignore anymore. And at some point, and I don't remember when exactly, but Sue Kaiser, who uh, is, uh, she's the mother of um, 
one of the potential victims of, of uh, Sherman Tyne and Herzog. She wanted to reach out to me. I was I was writing occasionally for the Lodi News Sentinel on various matters, mostly not really related to law enforcement, but um, yeah, people knew who I was, and and so she um, she wanted to have coffee with me, and one day she um, we were having coffee, and she reached out over the table and said, "What are you going to do?" to help me because she was explaining how Sheriff Steve Moore laughed in her face and was basically describing somebody who, who I would say is a sociopath, which is what I consider Sheriff Steve Moore. And Gail Marks is the name of, um, of Sue Kaiser's uh, daughter that disappeared. And, you know, they, at the time, Wesley Shermantine was like living near, near them and Gail was uh, one day, she was about, I think, 18 years old. She was uh, walking to the DMV uh, to get her um, driver's license or ID. We know that she got to the DMV because a few weeks later, uh, after she disappeared, her her, um, her ID showed up in the mail. But um, anyway, Gail's gone. And, you know, uh, Sherman Tyne slash Herzog are, are definitely on the suspect list of that. When there was a victim's mother again, so now again, years later, I'm being faced with a woman asking for my help and a case that relates to the case that I ignored many years ago. I made a, um, an internal decision that I would not stop until Sheriff Steve Moore, who I felt was an obstructionist, who was, a, who was endangering uh, this case in a, a, a bunch of ridiculous ways, that I wasn't going to stop until uh, there was some level of justice served. We will hear more of Frank's interview in a later episode. 